Blog Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors. iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and once again, welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and we've got a great show for you tonight, as always. Uh, we're going to be starting things off here in just a moment with uh, uh, a couple of great uh, professionals here on the Coach's Corner panel, and then a little bit later on in the show, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Greg Steinberg. He's the Professor of Human Performance at Austin P. State University, uh, just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. So he'll be joining us on the second half of the show um, here in just uh, about an hour's time, so I hope you'll stick around for that. Um, don't forget, you can always join us live every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central here on the blogtalkradio.com network. And the best way to find us is go to blog, excuse me, blogtalkradio.com forward slash golftalklive. Uh, and you can tune, us, uh, tune in live uh, at 6 p.m. Central. Um, and if for some reason you can't join us live, you can just visit that link anytime after the show has uh, ended. And uh, you can scroll down to the on-demand section. And you can check out all of the previously aired shows, including tonight's, will be there uh, after the, the uh, broadcast ends. So you can always check them out there. And at the end of the show, uh, in the closing credits, you'll hear some other great uh, areas that you can go and uh, if you prefer to listen on other platforms. There's a lot of other great platforms you can pick up the show as well. Um, all right, so I'm going to bring out the panel here. Uh, I've got two great guys, uh, uh, a returning veteran, if you will, John Hughes, who was uh, going to join us last week, and Tim Kramer. I'm going to introduce both of them, and then we'll bring them out uh, here so that we can uh, begin tonight's discussion. So John Hughes, I mentioned, uh, is a PGA Master Professional, uh, Honorary President of the North Florida PGA section, and he was a recipient of the 2013 PGA of America's Horton Smith Award. And he's also a senior editor and Golf Tips Magazine Top 25 instructor, plus part of the Golf Tips advisory staff. Uh, Tim Kramer also joining us tonight, another veteran of Coach's Corner. Uh, he's a visionary peak performance mind coach, uh, president and founder of Peak Performance Mind Coaching, a uh, program utilizing innovative and pioneering mind coaching techniques. And he's also a contributing editor with Golf Tips Magazine. So guys, uh, Welcome to Coach's Corner. Thank you. Thanks, Ted. All right. Um, I think what I'm going to do, uh, John, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll go in the order that I introduced you and, and uh, start with you. And what we're going to talk about tonight I thought would make for an interesting uh, discussion. You know, we all uh, are very familiar uh, playing our home courses, if we, if we have a home course, or one that we have uh, a lot of familiarity with. Uh, but every once in a while, we like to try something, venture out and try something new. So I thought it would be interesting to talk about how to play on a new golf course for the first time. So one that we've never, uh, you know, uh, been to before. Maybe uh, we get invited to another member's uh, course, or maybe we're traveling and uh, playing some of the great resort courses that are around the country and beyond. 
And uh, so we're, we're getting an opportunity to play something that we've never had uh, the opportunity to do before. So we're going to talk about some of the, uh, I guess, uh, rules, if you will, uh, playing a new golf course that are going to help you hopefully uh, shoot lower scores. So the first one, John, we're going to talk about, and that's to create a game plan for the golf course. So if you're going to advise, if you've got a student that says to you, hey, John, I'm, uh, I'm heading up to uh, Pinehurst next, uh, next week or, or maybe the, the week after, and uh, I've never played any of the courses up there. Uh, I'm going to be playing number two, which, of course, is uh, very famous. Um, what would advice would you give him and maybe preparing some of the things? Great question, Ted, and thanks as always for the opportunity to share and contribute. Tim, looking forward to a really outstanding hour with you. My clients, when they give, they pose that question to me, I'm like, well, who's the architect? Have you looked at aerials? Have you done your research on previous scores? If you've got a statistical package like Arcos, you can go back in, see what other people have shot. You just you want to do your homework as much as you can and prepare yourself for the, ten, the trends, the tendencies of the architect, the trends, the tendencies of the location where you're going. Florida, we've got flat, basically, terrain for the most part and a lot of wind, whereas if you go to the Sand Hills of North Carolina, there's a time for wind and there's a time for rain and there's a time for heat. So you, you want to get all this information prepared ahead of time. The aerials, I love giving my clients the challenge of going on Google or another map mm-hmm. service and looking at the golf course from an aerial view. And then what I ask them to do is play the course backwards. Most people are going to want to find that first tee, see where the, see where everything goes. And that's fine initially to have an understanding of the routing of the golf course. But if you really want to start preparing, why don't you go to each green and look a little bit backwards? What I mean by that is if you're on the green, where would be the optimal place you'd want your tee shot to be to be on the green and play it backwards that way on a par five. If you're trying to hit it into where your misses live, once they're there, I always ask my clients to do that because that's truly how the architect intended you to play. It's the path of least resistance looking backwards. Whereas looking forward, that's where all the, the hazards are. That's where all the fear factors are. So I think, that and I've had other people come to me and say, you know what, I'm I'm looking at yardages, and I see that certain yardages for certain holes do certain things architecturally. There, there's all sorts of little idiosyncrasies to each golf course, mm-hmm. and I think what you got to do is do your homework enough to understand what those idiosyncrasies are, and how those fit into your normal ball flight pattern and your normal mm-hmm. strategy. That's probably the easiest, most convenient, but it's also the most comfortable way to prepare for that new golf course experience. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that's a great way. And again, you know, you can spend uh, as little as 10 to 15 minutes researching it online. And depending on where you're going, if you're playing it in the next couple of days, you know, you may not have as much time if it's sort of a last-minute invitation. Uh, but if you're, you know, if it's a trip that you're planning on in, in the next month or so and you've got a little bit more time, you might want to spend more time and do some of the things. Go on. Uh, Google Earth is a great one. Uh, YouTube, obviously, um, you can get some information there as well about the particular facility. Uh, different golf forums you can actually jump on uh, that maybe you're talking about that specific facility, especially if it's a more popular facility. And uh, find out what uh, a lot of people would be surprised what they'll chat about on 
some of these golf forums, and they'll talk about playing that specific course and where some of the difficulties maybe they found or, or what have you, and you might pick up some tips there as well. Um, Tim, I'm going to sort of ask you a similar question, but we're going to approach it from a little bit differently because you're our mind coach, if you will. Um, John talked about some of the physical things we could do to get ready uh, to go and play that, that new course we've never played before. Uh, but I think also um, there's the getting our minds prepared as well. There's a lot of factors involved. People are nervous a little bit. They've never stepped on that facility before. And, uh, you know, maybe there, there's some challenges that they're not typically used to, maybe a lot more water, uh, maybe more bunkers, or maybe it's longer. Um, what are your thoughts here as far as getting your mind right before you head to that uh, new, new facility? Yeah, I think I think it's a really great question, and I loved what John had to say. Um, I guess I would add to that that most of the students I work with, as we uh, kind of plan out a course, and I'll be out there with them during a practice round. And there's there's a couple things to cover, but one of the first things is that what I am quick to point out to them that that uh, really all the nervousness and all the anxiety that they they feel they're really letting their mind get too far out into the future over things they can't control. So love the mm-hmm. idea of using things, programs like Google, Google Earth, and it, it really does help them to get an overhead view. It, it also lets them determine yardages, and so there's really becomes no reason in some, uh, some ways to hit a driver if, say, a three-wood is a more prudent uh, distance off the tee. The other thing that I like is the idea of looking back. What I'll do, too, uh, also with them, though, uh, guys, is I like, uh, and I've kind of simplified it in a way, but I call it ABC. And we ask ourselves the question in the pre-shot routine, where would I like this ball to go? And that's really my A location. It might be middle of the green. It might be wherever it might be. B, B is if it doesn't go there, where do I want to miss this shot? Where is my miss area? And then C is being prudent enough to know that I can't miss it here. It's like it might be water. It might be uh, short-sighting myself. It might be out of bounds. It might be something like that. But really having an awareness of, of the course, and again, I think Google Earth is probably the the perfect way when you haven't had time to get to a course to do that. The other thing, though, that I have to say is that, that with students who get nervous about and maybe um, get nervous or get anxious about playing a course they've never played before, and it might be a member guest or something like that, and the nerves already kick up because it's not their home course. And and we really try to come back to the the whole idea of look look you're playing one shot at a time. And I know that's trite, and I know we've certainly used that phrase for many 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 years. But when you think about it, all the anxiety that we experience is really our, our minds are just way too off in the future about all the what-ifs, the, all the bad things that could happen. So the whole idea of, I like the idea of just let's just connect the dots here. And if you know where the dot gets connected, that's what we want to do. And, and so we're connecting the dot to here. We're connecting it to here. And as John said, yeah, I love the idea of looking back from the green so that we have a very good sense of, of where we want the ball to go and really where our best miss would be. 
and we play it that way. And and just the, the whole idea, again, I think it boils down to a couple things here, is that we have a very good strategy in place, but we also have a, a very good emotional game in place so that we don't allow our nervousness to kind of uh, overtake us and overwhelm us into places that we really don't want to be going. Well said, uh, Tim. Thank you. Um, no, you're, you're exactly right. There's a lot of things. You know, preparation, um, you know, as, as we've mentioned here, um, is really twofold. You can, you can, I, whether it be through a program like uh, Google Earth or, or others, um, get a, a, an idea of the lay of the land, if you will. But then you have to put a game plan uh, in place and, and, and sort of put a strategy together of how you want to uh, attack the course. And again, you know, it's not about... Um, you know, trying to dominate the golf course, but you have an idea of, of how you're going to play it. I mean, it's different than what you're used to. You know, you play your home, home course maybe a couple of times a week and, and uh, for several months out of the year, and then all of a sudden you have an opportunity to try something new. And you don't want to go out there, and it's not a question of making a fool of yourself or, um, or not even necessarily playing well. Um, it's just a matter of you want to have a good time and you want to have fun. And I think, you know, it's, it's important, any course, even your home course, to always prepare uh, before you go out there. The other thing, John, too, um, coming back to you now, is, um, you know, if you want to play great golf on any course, uh, uh, it's certainly not going to happen if you're coming in the parking lot on two wheels, um, you know, because you're cutting it close for your tee time. I always like to, to recommend that golfers show up at least 30 to 60 minutes early um, for a number of reasons. What are some reasons that uh, that's a good idea uh, for golfers to do, is to show up a little extra early rather than just sort of showing up for their tee time 10 or 15 minutes beforehand? I think the biggest reason why that no one ever puts two and two together with is tempo. What you do prior to getting to the golf course, how you arrive to the golf course in a hurry, relaxed, maybe too relaxed for who you are, whatever it might be, what you're doing to get to the course and once you're at the course to prepare to hit that first shot, not only sets up the first shot, it sets up the tempo at which you're going to at least play the first few holes with. I can't tell you how many times I've had people tell me, well, I didn't get ready. I couldn't do it until the seventh hole. And I'll ask them, well, when did you get there? And they're arriving with five minutes to spare, ten minutes to spare. I had a competitive junior last month basically say, well, I only need 45 minutes. So I watched him in this 45 minutes, and he's literally rushing to the first tee. So I asked him, well, what, is, what do you need? What, what is it that you would normally do at home? And as he explains it, he's talking about 90 minutes worth. And I said, well, why don't, you get to, why don't you come here tomorrow 90 minutes ahead of time? He says, John, it's dark. That's why. I'm not going to get anything accomplished. And I said, no, you will. You're going to get your tempo accomplished. You're going to get your circadian rhythms comfortable enough. And I bet you you'll be very surprised what you can do in the dark to start preparing. And he ended up starting his round four under after six holes. And when he came back to me and told me how much more comfortable he was, he bought into the fact that he needed 90 minutes. Now, that's a competitive junior. You know, most of the people listening to this show, they're probably an average amateur. They're getting called up for the emergency nine, that kind of thing. I, I really think what you have to understand is once you get to that golf course, understand what your tempo is, what your circadian rhythm is, and base 
your arrival time on that. Base your preparation time on that. And it's different for everybody, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But at least calm yourself down. I'm sure Tim will talk about breathing a little bit with this and some other other skills and some other exercises. But the number one reason is to set your tempo. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And, uh, you know, I I think... Again, it depends on the circumstances, um, but again, you definitely want to show up for a couple of reasons. Uh, unless you've already eaten before, again, depending on what time your your tea time is, um, you know, you want to allow yourself time to grab something um, so that you're not rushing to the tea box. And also, too, if you're, you know, if you're playing, uh, you know, with a buddy that's invited you to his course, or maybe it's a group that you're uh, meeting there, um, they may have already been arrived. They're maybe warming up on the on the tee bar or on the uh, the practice area, and uh, you're showing up there, um, and and not really uh, doing them justice by uh, by showing up late or close to the tee time um, when you're scrambling to get everything prepared. And, and Tim, I think another thing, and you touched a little bit about this, but maybe you can expand a bit more. The other thing too is I think for for golfers, you know, we all want to shoot as we said our our best round, um, and especially if we're teeing it up on a new course, um, but. I think there's an important idea to stay patient during the round. Um, you know, I think there's a concerted effort to stay patient, in fact, uh, during the entire round because it's very easy uh, to get out of sorts when you're unfamiliar with the territory. Even if you've Googled everything and you've looked at it, uh, you're still not sure. familiar with all of the, the bumps and the undulations you might you come across, uh, not only in the fairway but on the greens as well. So um, what are some tips that maybe you might uh, you can refer to, maybe students that you've worked with in the past that you've helped them in a situation to stay patient during the round? Yeah, I think I think that what we're talking about here, Ted and John and Tim, I love I love what you say because to me the worst thing that uh, a golfer of any level can do. Now the, the tour players are obviously much better at this, but but is to arrive at a course and be immediately in a tizzy. It just is going to do you no good. Maybe it was because you left the the office too late. Maybe it was traffic. Maybe it was this. Maybe it was that. One of the things that I'm very um, kind of uh, that I really encourage my players to do is you don't even get out of the car until you have control of your emotions. And you know, I call it (laughs) – I jokingly call it that you know somebody is home. And, and what that means is you're aware that you're aware, and you're not just going through the motions. I, I, I see that time and again where, you know, you just get there, pull the clubs out of the trunk, you jump on the range, you start firing balls, and all the while you're not even aware of your emotional state of mind. And, and I think the important thing there is to understand that, that really that – Tension in the body. The body left to its own devices does not want tension of any kind. And so in order for the body to tense up, there has to be some bogus thoughts and emotions kind of floating through the head that cause it to tense up. And in my opinion, and and certainly what John alluded to, I don't think we do a good enough job at making it a priority to warm up in a very calm or very confident way, whichever emotion you tend to lean toward. So what we're really doing is we're waiting to hit balls and see what happens with the shot before we decide whether we can be calm or confident or whatever emotion we want to put into it. 
And I think there's a, a major trap there. And, and it's also true when we're getting to a new course that we're, I call it setting the tone. We're not setting an emotional tone. It's kind of what John referred to as a tempo, but it's really the same thing. You're not setting the tone for how you want to deal with the situation that day. And what you're really waiting to do is see how well you play before you can decide your frame of mind. And that's maybe, I think, the biggest trap we've got going. You could, you could set that tone early for I'm going to play calmly today. I'm going to play patiently today. I'm going to play one shot at a time today. So you almost set an emotional goal as much as you set a, a playing goal. And I think that, that that sets the tone for what you do. And that is an invaluable skill for golfers really at every level. And maybe, dare say, even more important for most amateurs who are, you know, usually a hole or two away in the early part of the round for just having a bad day and just letting it go. And, and you know, that's something that could be avoided. Yeah, uh, again, well said. Um, and, and, John, you know, golf we know is is certainly, uh, if not the hardest, um certainly among the hardest uh, games in the world. Um, and then you throw a new golf course on top of that uh, that you've never seen before, it, the game suddenly gets that much harder. Um, and, and here are some options um, that can be had. In, in some cases, it may not be available at that particular course. Uh, so, you, again, doing your research sort of helps you a little bit. But um, you want to maybe find some help before you actually get teeing off. And that's why I think... Um, it's a good idea to go uh, early or, or when you're booking your tee time, you can uh, inquire about some of this. But um, some courses might have um, uh, a caddy service. You might want to consider doing that as one. Um, another one is, might be a yardage book. And uh, the other one is you might want to find out uh, if they offer GPS with their carts. Uh, and if not, um, you might, if you have one, uh, you might want to bring it. If you have a, a range finder or a handheld, you might want to bring that. So maybe you could talk about that, about maybe getting some help. What are some other options? Uh, maybe talk a little bit more about some of the things I just mentioned, if you'd like, uh, about maybe getting help before you actually uh, get to the golf course and tee off. Well, the, the first help is word of mouth. Uh, have any of your playing <coughs> friends ever played the golf course? Uh, you probably know how your friends play. Do they play aggressive, conservative? And you take that with a grain of salt as they describe their experience of playing the particular course you're going to. A lot, a lot of times you can call – this happened to me quite often at resorts and even private clubs. We get the call, hey, do you guys have a yardage book? I'd like to buy one. Here's my credit card. Will you ship it to me? Uh, that that – it's probably a lost request with all the digi digital stuff we have out there. There's tons right. of apps, mobile apps, that you can go to for that information. Now, from another standpoint of help, what, who, again, I go back to the architect and architectural styles and what certain architects like. So I'll give a couple of examples. Jasmine Muirhead is the one that, really brought Jack Nicholas up to speed with golf course architecture. Desmond was known as somewhat vicious at times. And in a homage, sort of say, to Desmond, Jack Nicholas courses normally have at least one fairway with a tree or a bunker or something in it for a four or five. 
where is that? And, and normally, if you know Nicholas courses, they're at holes that are easily scorable or where he feels a round can turn either way. And every Nicholas course is like that. Greg Norman, he played courses in Australia as a kid that had no rough. I've never played a golf course at Norman's design that has rough. It's all pretty much fairway cut into natural areas. If you know these tendencies and trends, how do you use those to your advantage? That That is information that helps. You're basically getting it on your own now. But from an, an ask standpoint of view, I, I think go you can go on the forums now and, and read a lot. You just don't know how that player plays, and, and you do have to take that all with a grain of salt. Your word of mouth, your people who have been there and done it, are typically the ones that are going to provide you the best information, hopefully because they know you and your game, but more importantly, you probably know theirs, and you know what they're describing based on their experiences, and you can incorporate that into your style. Yeah, and, and you know, also, as you mentioned, too, there's a lot of great apps out there now that pretty much have uh, a, certainly a good many, maybe not every course, but the majority of courses that you're probably likely going to come across um, have them in there, so you can get a lot of good information there. It actually will give you the yardages, and obviously, uh, you know, if you're playing in, in a, um, a tournament-sanctioned event, then, you know, there's obviously uh, restrictions there, but um, if you're just getting together with your buddies and you're playing in a golf course you've never played before, um, in addition to doing your homework ahead of time, uh, if you've got access to one of these apps, if you're using them, or uh, as I said, some of the other uh, GPS devices, and a lot of golf courses now and have had for a number of years, uh, GPS built right into the golf carts. So if you're using a cart, for instance, um, and you're not walking, um, a lot of times you can use that, and that gives you information as well, uh, where yardage to the you know to the bunker, and maybe that's on the right or the tree or what have you, and and uh, gives you sort of the lay of the land and the shape of the hole and so forth. So there's a lot of good information to be had, and it's just a matter of really um, paying attention. I, I remember years ago, my, my friends and I, a group of us went down to, uh, uh, or in this case went up to uh, Myrtle Beach and uh, played a, a bunch of different golf courses. I hadn't played on those specific courses before. And, uh, you know, we relied quite heavily at, at times. Um, you know, Google Earth wasn't quite what it was uh, now, um, so we didn't really have that as much of an option, but um, we certainly utilized the GPS that was uh, available in the golf courts. And um, I'll tell you, it, it made uh, you know a world of difference knowing those yardages. And you know, we would certainly get out and pace off a little bit as well to help out. But uh, it makes a lot of sense. So you know, things like that are, are extremely important to uh, to look into before you head out to that uh, that golf course. Um, and, and Tim, you know, this is an area, and again, this is more. Uh, falls sort of under the strategy of playing, but um, you know Nicholas often talked about you know teeing it forward, playing it up a little bit, and you know being smart and maybe utilizing other clubs in the bags that, uh, instead of just hitting the driver off the tee all the time. Maybe um, again this sort of falls under course management as well. Um, what are your thoughts here? I think you know working with uh, obviously some of the juniors that you worked with and, and other uh, more accomplished players um, have a better understanding of it. But you know you work with amateurs as well and. You get a lot of them that get out there, and they maybe just don't have good course management. So maybe you could talk about, uh, you know, moving up a few tee boxes if necessary, and maybe utilizing some of the other equipment that they have in their bag um, to help them out navigate around the course. 
Yeah, I, I personally love that as a strategy. Um, I think that too many times, especially with the juniors, who I have to laughingly say can flat out bomb it these days. But but I think what I would sooner see as a coach, as performance coaches, I would sooner see them playing it up in order to um, make decisions that make sense rather than go all the way back just to have to think they bomb it because. What happens in most cases is that they're, the drivers are always coming out and they're swinging too hard just to try and cover more distance. And I think that's a very appropriate strategy when you get a little bit of experience on your belt. But I'd much sooner see a newer player or maybe, uh, you know, uh, just a decent amateur or, or any amateur play it from a distance where you're feeling successful. Because to me, that is the feeling that we're after, is a feeling of accomplishment and success. So you're not fighting anything out there. I, I think that the internal battle so many times is what really sabotages performance and we start to feel the game is really hard and it's not as enjoyable. Whereas if we moved up a set or two of tees and we didn't always have a three or four hundred of the green on the par fours, and maybe you had a mid-iron in or even a short iron in. You're going to enjoy the game a whole lot more, and you're going to make better decisions. So it really all starts to play upon itself in a very similar way, and, and uh, I do think that this is something that, that most amateurs would, would definitely benefit by is, is playing it from a more appropriate set of tees. The other thing that I might add is it's it's a, a little bit of strategy, but what I like to say is that you you plan conservatively and you play aggressively. So in other words, uh, when you do take distance into account, you're doing so in a conservative way where you're going to get the ball and keep the ball in play to the best of your ability. And I might mm-hmm. mention too, as I heard John talking, and you guys have certainly heard this one before, but. A lot of amateurs don't even take the time to plan out a course. And the most common complaint I hear about that is, Tim, I don't even know where the the ball is going. I mean, I'm not really that comfortable with my swing or knowing where it's going or how much of a slice am I going to have going that day. And, and, And I get all that. And so the best made plans in the world can still go sideways if, if you're really playing as a high enough handicap player and trying to enjoy the game, but you, you don't know where it's going to which I would always say, yeah, but generally there's a shot that you could get that would be a little bit more conservative. You can still swing aggressively and you can make a good move at the ball, but, but just do something that's going to keep the ball in play. Cause the biggest concern I hear is, is, <clears throat> You know, you've got water, you've got out of bounds, you've got all these bunkers and things like this that I think in many cases could be avoided if we were to plan a little bit more, more, uh, you know, prudently and, and, and really, again, enjoy the game more. Once I believe, you know, we're talking about different levels of players here, obviously. Sure. But, but, but the average player to me, who shoots a really good score and enjoys himself or herself the most, those are the ones who would benefit the most from moving it up and, and just 
playing shots that make some sense. And it takes a lot of the nervousness out of it. It takes a lot of the anxiety out of it. And um, it's, it's, I think in many cases, you're just biting off way too much uh, when you go to a new course without any idea, you know, just play it up. You can always move it back. If you, if it, mm-hmm. if it gets too easy and you're shooting even par, then go ahead and move it back. But, but beyond that, let's, let's just shoot a good number and have fun and play it up as much as you want. Yeah, and, and I think the other thing, well said, Tim. Um, and, John, I think the other thing, too, um, and, again, all, all circumstances are different, but um, having a strategy, I think, is a really good idea, not just about the course, but, um, you know, if, if you're playing a one-and-done, in other words, if you're just going to the course, it's a one-time deal, um, you know, you may not want to do what I'm going to suggest here, um, but let's say, you know, you and your buddies or, or you know, you and your spouse are, are going to a, a resort for a period of time and you're going to play multiple rounds of golf. Um, I would think, John, if, if you've had a student that's said, hey, I'm, I'm going on a trip in a, in a couple of months and I'm going to be playing a course uh, or courses, depending on what they have available, um, that I'm not familiar with, maybe you could sit down with me uh, you know, as my coach, because John, you know his or her game, and you can maybe help them plan out a strategy. Take a look at the golf course. You can together, and you know, even if it's in the in the confines of a lesson, um, you know, you can do it that way and just say, hey, let's look at your game, where it's at right now, um, and where it's going to be. You know, when you when you do that, so maybe walk us through that a little bit, because I think that would be uh, you know something that would be good for somebody that's again not maybe maybe a one and done, but somebody that's going um, and maybe going to be playing. Uh, multiple courses or or course multiple times, um, it's a good idea maybe to sit down with somebody uh, that knows their game. What are your thoughts? I think that's a fantastic strategy and a fantastic resource. Most people don't ask to utilize the resource. Uh, It happens Mm -hmm. all the time, and I know it happens all the time because every one of my clients, when they show up for their coaching session, Hey, where where are you playing next? That's that's one of the questions I'm asking, simply so I can find out where their interests might be, where they might be traveling. Do I have a connection there that can help them out? But if I know the golf course, or if I've played the golf course before, or if I have a friend that's a, a professional there and I know something about it, it's much much easier for me to go to them than it is for them to come to me because they're probably reluctant thinking, well, I'm, I'm at Falcon's fire 24 seven most of the time. How does he know these other mm-hmm. places? So with that said, it is about your game. It's not about whether I've been there or not. It's about here's the tendencies that I see as your coach. Here's your predominant yep. ball flight. Here's the grouping of certain predominant ball flight shots with certain clubs. And how does this grouping land in a place where you're in play. I love what Tim said about conservative aggression. I'm a fan of it. I coach it. So that is the conservative play, believe it or not, understanding your game. And if you understand your game, you don't have to be so conservative with your decisions. You're just being now more realistic. When it comes to playing aggressive, I'll give you an example, one and done. I was in the Dominican Republic last year playing one of the most famous golf courses they have there. I knew ahead of time what my job was going to be. It was to have fun. 
with a one and done. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I had to understand what my ball flight <clears throat> tendencies were, which holes to be aggressive on, which holes not to be. So I literally sat down when I got there, got a yardage book, walked around. I was fortunate I was staying on the property. I was able to walk around and see it and get that plan, get that strategy. Where did I go for the help? I actually went to the head pro, the director of instruction there a week prior to have them walk me through it. They had no clue about my game, but at the same time, I communicated to them what my priority was to be there. It wasn't to shoot a score. It wasn't to break the course record. It was to have a lot of fun. And if the score came as a result, then so be it. Turned out all three rounds, that's exactly what happened. But I prepared well for it. I prepared based on my skill set, my tool chest. And your coach can help you understand that. Because sometimes you've got a tool staring you in the face and you refuse to use it. And you're going to need it on another golf course. But some of the tools you may use all the time may not be appropriate. And that's where a coach can help you with a little bit of homework on the golf course, a little bit of homework on the architect, but a little bit more homework on what's going on right now in my game and how do I utilize it. Yeah, I think that's well said. You know, because the the truth of the matter is, uh, ultimately, Tim, you know, we want um, our student or a friend or what have you um, to, to enjoy themselves, to have a good time when they go on a, a trip like that, whether it's a buddy trip or, uh, again, going as a couple or, or what have you. Um, you want them to be able to join the experience and not feel stressed out. But we know, um, as the old saying goes, that uh, um, you know, you're always going to find uh, those out here who uh, allow themselves to creep, you know, the anxiety creeps in and they, they end up... Uh, just blowing out the round and just not having a good time. So um, we want to keep it casual. There's a number of ways to do that. Um, you know, skip the scorecard, for instance. Um, you know, don't keep score. Let's just go around and and, uh, yeah. and have some fun that way. Um, maybe even yeah. choosing match play uh, might be another option, sure. Um, sure. you know, with, with your buddy in that. Play that format because you don't have to finish the hole if things start going south and sure. you don't want to lose that sleeve of golf balls. Um, but when you do right. get somebody that's out there and, and let's say they're starting off poorly, um, what are some advice that you, obviously you're going to give this to them before, um, but if they sense that that's happening, what are some advice you're going to give them maybe mid-round to be thinking about? What are you going to get them to think about that helps them get back on track and not end up being yeah. a total loss? Well, right, right. Well, and that's that's kind of the phenomenon of, of uh, you, you know, there's a lot of players out there who, in some ways, they find a way to shoot themselves in the foot before they can start playing well and before they can kind of relax into it. And that's what we're trying to avoid. And even from an, kind of an emotional energy standpoint, there's a, there's a momentum to that energy of nervousness that we're trying to keep out of the equation. It really begs a, a great issue within the mind game, and, and it still is where maybe most <clears throat> mind coaching would decide is what do, what do I do when I really get nervous? And while nobody wants to hear this answer, it's probably the best answer we've got. And the answer to that is you find a way to avoid the nervousness to begin with. And that's not easy to do, but 
But again, it gets a little bit into what we talked about before and certainly what John said and what I believe is the moment you arrive at the course, you're setting the tone emotionally for how you want to feel about that round today. Now, the reality within the mind game itself would be you can't be feeling nervous and calm in the same moment in time. That that sounds silly enough and makes enough sense, but the bottom line is that I believe if more players just committed to a solid mind game in addition to the physical talent that they bring to the game, they they would enjoy it a whole lot more. And it's ironic, I hear all the time from my amateur players, well, well, you know, um, yeah, it's okay for me to have fun, but, you know, out on tour, if you're out on tour and it's your job and you're making money and whatever, and, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute, in that the answer to that is that when those guys are having the most fun is when they're playing the best. So I think we really have to be careful when we make fun out to be a dirty word. It, it really is the reason that we're playing golf. And if we can learn to enjoy ourselves more, not be so dependent on score. Now, one of the things that I've come up with, with, with actually even tournament players that I coach, is that you keep two separate scorecards. Obviously, the one is for the score. But the second one is for a, a mental or emotional quality. It might be focus. It might be how much fun you're having. And you put a check mark um, uh, for each shot that you take. You put a check mark that says, yeah, I had fun on that shot. And your goal with that one is to get that score just as high as you can get it. And ironically, what starts to happen is that the higher the number on that scorecard goes, the lower the number on their actual scorecard becomes simply because they've shifted the mindset into one of having mm-hmm. fun. And, and we really have gotten away from that. We, 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 you know, even as a culture, we are very results driven at the expense of having a great time when we're, when we're doing it. And I, I think that's sad because I think golf is a game and, and we get so results driven especially for tournament players that we forget that, you know, we're, the body's going to relax more, the mind's going to relax more when you just learn to enjoy yourself and, and have a good time out there. But but doing that without making it a goal is actually, I think, quite challenging. So I think that needs to go, again, I call it the parking lot syndrome, but before you get out of the car, you you set a tone for how you want to emotionally feel that day, and I think fun is a very important part of that. Yeah, and, and I, I couldn't agree more. I think the other thing, too, is, um, you know, as you pointed out, Tim, is, is attitude um, plays a big factor here. If you're coming in uh, with sort of a defeatist attitude because you maybe haven't been playing well at your home course and oh, uh, you've been invited, you know, from a, you know by a buddy or something, yeah, and uh, he says, well, come on, we'll play my course this week and give you something different to look at. Now, you've, you know, the anxiety level has gone up because you know you're not playing well. And, uh, you know, you, you've just sort of got that, as I said, that defeatist attitude. And, and, John, the other thing, too, I think, which is good, you know, we, you talked about sort of preparing overall um, and, and sitting down with the student maybe and, and talking about, um, you know, the upcoming uh, opportunity, um, sort of an overall. But I think also it's good to not only know what your limitations are, but also maybe to have, uh, would you think, maybe like a go-to shot um, um, so that when they, if they do get into trouble, 
they've got a shot that they know that whether it's you know maybe just hitting a seven iron 150 yards that they can default to when they feel that hey things are not going right but I know I can hit my seven iron pretty solid at least that much and at least it keeps them as, as Tim pointed out in play what are your thoughts here and what would you do just prior to them going uh, out again whether it's going to a resort or whether it's going to play a course is there some specific things that you would do with them with their swing with their uh, ball striking ability is there anything that you would do uh, to help give them a little bit of an edge going into that opportunity that's a great question. Everybody thinks it's going to be something different than you normally would do. Uh, your go-to shot is your go-to shot, whether it's at your home course or any other course. Uh, you see that day in, day out on the PGA and LPGA tours. When someone's got the pressure down, they need to come up with a shot, and they go to their go-to shot, uh, even if maybe the whole shape doesn't call for it. Why? Because they have confidence in it. They know they're going to get a, a consistent result out of it. So many times I'll have people, oh, I'm going to this course, I'm going to that course, and there's more wind, there's more water, there's more sand, there's more trees, there's more hills. They're coming up with everything imaginable to block the idea that what they play with normally can actually work. Could there be some alterations to it to maybe set up a slight bit different? Sure. But your go-to shot, your go-to shot. And how you get to that go-to shot isn't going to change because you're playing a different golf course. You're probably going to need that go-to shot because you're getting in too much trouble or you're losing your mm -hmm. confidence. Or the shot calls for it. It's normally one of those three things. And simply because you're playing a different golf course doesn't mean you have to have a different go-to shot. It's, and that's what right. most people confuse themselves with. I, I've lived by the phrase that your, your game's got to travel. And what that means is you've got to be able to shoot a score anywhere. And to do that, you're going to do it based, totally based on your current skills but also understanding and recognizing the cues that you may be falling in for the need to have your go-to shot. And it's you're, you have enough courage to go ahead and do that. Simply because you're in a different place playing with different people on a different golf course doesn't mean you're a different person. It's all the mm -hmm. same. You've got to have enough confidence and commitment to be able to take your shot. So, the answer to the question is, I'm just reviewing with them what makes them the strongest golfer they can be, what makes them the most confident golfer they can be, and have them understand that whether we're playing the home course or playing another course, you're still the same person. It's still the same shots. Right, right, exactly. Well said. And I think, guys, the other thing, too, is um, you have to kind of be like a, a little bit of a sponge, and you have to use this as an opportunity, as a learning opportunity. Um, you're playing on a different uh, uh, dance floor, if you will, and uh, maybe at your home, home course it's very hilly. Maybe this one's not so much or maybe vice versa. So there's an opportunity here to learn from uh, this experience, not just to go out. Obviously, you want to have fun, and, and that's what you want to focus on. But you can also, as Tim, as you pointed out, maybe make some notes and, and talk about, um, you know, jot down some notes about the experience. And 
And um, maybe you're going to be faced with challenges that you weren't faced with typically on your home course uh, because of the conditions, or maybe it's a more open-style course. It's something you're not usually a little windier, as we've said. Um, so this is a learning opportunity as well um, to make some notes so that when you do come back to somebody like John or, or yourself or myself, um, then you can say, hey, this is some of the things I found at this course here that I didn't normally you know, see here at, at Falcon's Fire or, or another course that you uh, belong to. And uh, so you have to look at it as a learning experience and always use that because that's how you improve. You learn from uh, mistakes that get made on the golf course and for opportunities uh, to take them whenever you uh, find them. So uh, a lot of interesting things, and I think it was an interesting discussion. So I want to um, I want to close giving you each a, a couple of minutes um, before uh, we wrap up entirely. Uh, John, I'm going to come back to you. Um, when you go to a, another course, you've prepared, you've done everything, um, and you've the tips that we've talked about here tonight, I would think it would be a great opportunity to then come back and dissect a little bit of that with your coach, with he or she that you're working with. Because um, that would be, a, again, not only what you learned at that facility, but there may be some things that your coach could take away from that experience to help make it a better uh, uh, opportunity on the, on the lesson tee with, with him or her. What are your thoughts here? Yeah, I couldn't have made that point any cleaner or crisper. Uh, your co- if you've got a good coach, they're always listening to you and always learning things from you. And when you've played any round at any golf course, your experiences are valued to your coach to have that coach understand what your pressure points might have been, what your strengths might have been that particular day based on environment or surroundings. What you may have been doing physically gifted and what you could have been doing physically ungifted. That goes for the mental and the emotional parts of your game as well. Sharing your experience with your coach allows the evolution of your game to continue. And if you keep everything inside and not share that and always just dwell with your ball striking, whereas maybe you had a poor putting day or maybe you had an outstanding putting day because the greens were a certain stem or the bunkers were in such great condition you've never seen bunkers like that. If you're competitive, now this helps you pick the next tournament site to go to. If you're a traveler, you, you, you commit dollars to go see resorts and play resorts. Now it's all of a sudden, well, you need to go play this course, not necessarily that one. It doesn't fit your style. It doesn't fit the strengths of you. It doesn't fit your experience or the experience you're wanting to have based on previous ones. Whether you're competitive, you're traveling, you're a hobbyist, or you're trying to put another notch on the bedroom post when it comes to the top 100 course list. Sharing those experiences with your coach is invaluable. Right. And, and as you pointed out too, John, earlier, you know, with technology and a lot of the apps out there, you can actually even share that experience in real time with your coach as well. A lot of times, you know, uh, they can connect to an app and you can actually have a lot of that information, uh, including the score, be uploaded directly into 
whatever app you may be using, and your coach can go in. You can, especially if they know that you're going on a trip, um, and that information is being uploaded into that account. Uh, he or she can go in and, at any point and maybe take a look and see some of the areas and see how you're doing. And they don't necessarily have to comment or have to respond necessarily, but it gives them instant access uh, um, when they've got a free moment to take a look and say, you know, how's Bob doing? Uh, you know, at his uh, at his uh, trip to Pinehurst or whatever the case may be. So there's a lot of opportunities there. And, and Tim, finally for you, um, uh, again, you know, as John said, it, it's it's a good opportunity if you have uh, somebody that's off playing uh, a, a a course that they're not familiar with, and they come back. Obviously, you know you, you can take that opportunity to be able to um, sort of help them decompress a little bit and and to look at uh, some of the pluses and the minuses, and and again use it as a learning opportunity in that. Um, but what would be some final thoughts that you would have, or comments that you would have for when they came back and? The wheels fell off the bus. They had a terrible time. Yeah. 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 Now they've come back they're, with a, a really—it's right. been a negative experience, right? And now they've come right. back. The wheels fall off. You're picking up Monday morning with them on a, on the lesson tee and and trying to work with them, right. and they say, "Well, Tim, you know, it just everything just fell off off the off the wagon." What's your conversation going to be? Yeah, it, it really is what I do with all my players. And, and what I try to do is keep it – what I like to say is that I, I do believe the mind game coaching can be every bit as, as um, effective as, you know, what John does with video with his students and stuff like that. But, but so what I'll do is I will, I will analyze the game in three dimensions, and, and that is mental, physical, and emotional. Mental being strategy – physical being the swing or the move and emotional being just that or emotions. And so rather than just have it become a, a, and Oh, I just sucked this weekend. Just awful. Rather than Mm -hmm. becoming that kind of conversation, which really doesn't do them any good other than the off a little steam, but they don't learn anything from that. Right. So, so what I really want is I want to dig deeper into it. Well, did you make some bad decisions? How do you think your decision making was while you were there? Well, Tim, it was it was pretty good. All right, good. So so how was how was your swing? Well, my swing was a little suspect. And of course, everybody goes right to the swing as soon as as soon as there's yep. mistakes. It's I'm doing this in my swing and doing that in my swing. And and what they ignore right away is the mental and emotional causes in many cases for why this swing broke down. But then the third variable is the emotional game. And and it was like I was just off in the weeds all weekend emotionally, and I got so upset with myself. And, and you know, and, and I just couldn't handle the adversity I'm playing with with my buddy and yeah, I care too much about what other people think about me and this and that, but I really want to get more specific with why it broke down rather than just being a general, I, I didn't play well, played awful and yeah, I hit the ball terrible. And, and I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but at the same time, I'm more interested in why it happens the way that it's happening. So in many ways, the ability to break it down on those levels, I think it's great. I also should mention that, that one of the things that I, that I encourage my students, and I call it the 1% rule, <clears throat> is that we try and make it a, 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 a part of the coaching every time we get together, every time after we're done with a session or whatever. 
The goal is to just simply get 1% better at something today than you were before. And when you think about that, that 1% would really add up quite quickly. If we just got a little bit better at either strategizing or our swing or having a little better attitude and mood, that all becomes very exponential in terms of their improvement. So so we're not just, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that – that the game plays itself out on multiple levels. And, and, and I, I know, Ted, that you understand that, John. I, I know you mm-hmm. do too. But it's really hard on some levels on some, in some ways to <clears throat> differentiate the bad swing that was caused by a bad attitude or the bad swing that was caused by a poor decision or the poor decision that was caused by being nervous or the, you know, the, 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 the poor shot that caused the bad attitude. And so we really, I believe, have to take it on all those levels. And that's why, you know, I love it too, that, yeah, we do need to make it a game of looking to improve and looking to have fun. And it's it's never a game they're going to master for very long. <laughs> Wouldn't it be no, nice and, and even the nobody says right, and even Right, exactly. And even the best players in the world go through the same process. You know, what people oh, exactly. forget is is – whether it's Tiger, whether it's Jack, whether it's you know um, Bryson DeChambeau, any of these players, Rory McIlroy, you know all of these players started where you did, and I'm talking to the amateurs out there. They all had a beginning. The difference is they handle their themselves. They handle their game. You know, everyone thinks, well, they strike the ball better. Yes, of course they do, but there was a process that led them to where they are now. And obviously, we don't expect every uh, high handicapper to go through the same process that um, that the top players in the world have done, obviously, unless they're planning on playing competitive at that level. But there are certain things that they have done along the way to uh, garner improvements overall, not just in their physical game, but in their mental game as well. And so there's things that, as an amateur, that you can do to improve all areas of your game that we've talked about here tonight. It's not just a matter of, uh, you know, everybody's focusing on, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Tim, the golf swing and, uh, you know, hitting the ball just perfectly down the middle of the fairway. Well, nobody, even the best players in the world, don't do that every single time. So, um, you know, there's other factors and other parts of the game uh, that need to be uh, focused on. And I think that, you know, getting together with a good mind coach and getting together with a good swing coach and formulating a, a game plan uh, overall, I think is going to help, and then sticking with it uh, and tweak and adjust it as needed, um, but sticking with that plan and then working on it. Uh, if you don't practice the things that you're being taught, you're never going to play, and um, you're only taking those bad habits and those things wherever you go uh, travel. So you might as well start from ground zero and start with a good game plan and create something. Sit down with your coach and say, hey, you know what, I, I want to go on a trip and I want to do this and I want to you know, bring my, my, the best me that I can. Um, and you're going to have to work on all of those areas. Well, guys, I want to thank you. I think it was an interesting discussion. Hopefully those that are planning um, to head out to a different uh, venue uh, throughout the season, I hope they picked up a few tips uh, that will help them uh, prepare um, for that uh, opportunity. Um, as always, I'm going to give you guys uh, just a moment or two to let the folks know if they want to reach out and any final thoughts uh, before we close off. Uh, John, you go first and then Tim. Sure. Thanks, Ted, again for the opportunity. Thank you, as always. Tim, great discussion. Always a pleasure to be on board with you. 
Very easy to find me, John Hughes Golf, whether it's at John Hughes Golf, hashtag John Hughes Golf, JohnHughesGolf.com. That's the way to find me. And this discussion couldn't have been more apropos for me. I'd like to invite everybody to a new place with me this summer. It's called the Macklemore in Rising Fawn, Georgia. I'm going to be doing a temporary coaching residency there between June 19th and July 9th. And you're more than welcome to join me there for a two- or three-day golf school. Wonderful facility. It was, it's been named one of the top 100 public courses you can play. It's got one of the top 10 finishing holes in all the world. Uh, fantastic vistas, fantastic venue. I hope you join me there this summer. Thanks again, Ted. Always a pleasure. And Tim? Yeah, easiest to reach me. Uh, again, John, it was great, as always. And uh, I, I always uh, love your perspective. And, and you know, Ted, as you were saying, too, and I really do think that we – it's just so important we continue to look at the game uh, just from a lot of different levels and to improve a lot of different ways. Uh, easiest way to reach me is um, Tim, Tim at peakperformancemindcoaching.com. Uh, the other thing I think, Ted, as I was uh, alluding to with you before, very excited. We've been putting together for about the past year a new online course, Mind Coaching course, and it comes out through an, uh, a business called Mind Game Now. And uh, very excited about the course. It's called Believe and Achieve, and uh, it will make it very accessible to golfers and really athletes of every level. I'm hopeful that it will uh, really help to improve performance. But that's the best way to reach me is just, uh, uh, you know, again, Mind Game Now is probably the easiest one to remember. Perfect. Well, guys, thank you as always for joining me on Coach's Corner panel. It's always a pleasure, and I enjoy uh, our uh, interesting discussions, and hopefully, as I said, some folks will have learned uh, something along the way. But uh, take care until next time. Uh, have a great weekend, and happy St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> That's right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, I appreciate man. it. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. That was uh, John Hughes and Tim uh, Kramer joining me on the Coach's Corner panel. And before I bring on my special guest this evening, we're going to take a quick break and a message from Golf Tips Magazine. The following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, simple to follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, equipment, training aids, accessory and apparel reviews, golf destinations and travel tips for every budget, and so much more. Don't miss a single issue. Go to GolfTipsMag.com and subscribe today. All right, you can just go to GolfTipsMag.com, and if you enter in GolfTips21 uh, in the promo code section, uh, you will actually save uh, just a little over 30%, and you'll get a year subscription for just $9.99. So go to GolfTipsMag.com, uh, subscribe to the uh, print uh, issues and uh, enter promo code GOLFTIPS21 and you will save uh, just a little over 30% off the regular uh, subscription price for an annual subscription and uh, you'll get it for $9.99 so make sure you do that. Alright, I'm excited to be joined by my uh, uh, guest this evening, uh, Dr. Greg Steinberg. He is a professor of human performance at 
Austin P. State University near Nashville, Tennessee, and he's ranked by Golf Digest, uh, ranked him actually as one of the world's greatest performance uh, psychologists. So please welcome my very special guest this evening, Dr. Greg Steinberg. Good evening, Greg. Thanks, How are you? Thanks for, thanks for having me on the show. Not a problem. I'm glad to have you. Um, so let me do this um, before we get into some of the specific questions and that. Why don't you just give us a little bit of an overview, a little bit of background of what, uh, what you're interested, obviously, in golf and why you do the things that you do um, at Austin. Well, that's a good question to start off with. Uh, I'm a professor. I've been a professor for 25 years at Austin Peay State University, uh, which basically I teach sports psychology and related courses. And I've also mm -hmm. been the mental game coach for a bunch of um, collegiate teams like the University of Florida when they won the NCAA championship team, uh, champions, uh, championship uh, in 1993. And I've also been the Vandy men's coach uh, when Brant Snedeker was on the team. So I worked with a lot of mm -hmm. uh, teams, uh, a lot of, um, you know, uh, PGA Tour players. And also I play a lot of golf myself, so it's it's just, it's just a great uh, way to um, share my passion. Well, and, and you know, it, it's interesting because you really cover an area of the game that only until recent years, probably maybe the last 10 or so, has really come into the forefront in golf. I mean, we've always heard, as I'm sure you know, um, for many, many years, we've always focused on the swing as teaching professionals. And we really didn't talk about the mind game and, and the emotions and things like that behind the golfer because we didn't really think it was important. Um, but as you obviously know, and, and doing what you do and working with the, with the talent that you have, um, that it's a big part of the game and that often gets overlooked, especially by amateurs. So I want to I first talk about something um, you know, we all have some pretty bad shots occasionally, even the best players in the world. Um, and for the better players, for the most part, they can recover pretty quickly. Um, there have been some, you know, occasions in history where uh, there's been a few that uh, continued on that, that tra train and ended up uh, derailing a, what could have been a promising uh, tournament. Um, but for the most part, they, they're able to recover after a bad shot or two. Um, but many amateurs really struggle this, especially if they have a bad hole. Um, it can really derail the rest of the round. So how do you recover from a bad shot? What, what's the first thing that you need to have going through your mind? Or uh, Actually, let's talk about the bad shot. So we've hit a bad shot. Maybe you can give us a description of, of what we're talking about here, and then you can sort of unpack what you would suggest or what you would discuss with them on how to recover. Well, uh, Ted, as we know, golf is tough, and uh, you're going to hit some bad shots. Um, I remember Ben Hogan would say he you know, planned to hit five bad shots, and if Ben Hogan planned to hit five bad shots, you better plan <laughs> on hitting at least five bad shots. You know, and, and the right, first exactly. step is really, yeah, the first step is really to accept that you're going to hit some bad shots, but you also need a mental mechanism to let it go. And uh, what I call uh, a mental mechanism is a post-shot routine. But more specifically, when I work with players, I tell them after they hit a bad shot, you have three seconds to figure out what you did wrong. And I say three seconds because I, I don't want them to overthink it. And once they, let's say, figure out what they did wrong, let's say they were quick at the top, then they do this, the next swing or they do their practice swing with the fix, and then they see the shot go where they want, you know, they image the shot to go where they really want it to go, and then they just say mm -hmm. next shot. 
Um, and so it's a mental mechanism to let go of the negative baggage. And you need something like that to, to allow yourself to let it go. Otherwise, you're going to bring all that negative baggage to the next shot. Now, you can vary that. You can, you know, after you hit a bad shot, you can wipe your thigh and, and, and decide to let it go. Or you can just, just decide to say uh, next shot and let it go. But the idea is you need some type of mental mechanism to let it go. Otherwise, that negative baggage is going gonna, is gonna to go with you to the next shot. So essentially what you're talking about is like a trigger, in a sense, is you want to have a trigger of some sort that basically lets your mind know, okay, you know what, yeah, I've hit a bad shot, but I need to let it go and I need to move on, is essentially what you're talking about, right? Exactly. And, and you've got to figure out what works best for you. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. some people just wipe themselves, you know, in terms of their thighs. Some people say next shot. Some people do what I said where they, you know, think what they did wrong and then they do the simulated swing and then they say next shot. But the idea is you need something like that. If you watch Jim Furyk, um, he has the great post-shot routine. He's, every time he, he, let's say, he misses a chip, he always does some type of post-shot routine. You can see it. He simulates what he wanted to do. He images it. Mm -hmm. And then he, you can see yep. how he lets it go. And, you know, if you look at Jim Furyk, he's one of the great overachievers, you might say. And, you know, I know he has a, a lot of talent. Of course, he has so much mm -hmm. talent. But I think it's his mental game which has allowed him to raise his game to the top of the PGA Tour. And one of the things he does great is he has an amazing post-shot routine. Yeah, and, and you know what's interesting, too? You're exactly right. You don't really – you know, there's a lot of great ball strikers on the tour, but it's the ones that master themselves on the golf course that we remember. I mean, if you look at Nicholas over the years as an example – and even Tiger Woods, uh, certainly they hit some tremendous and incredible golf shots, but they weren't the best ball strikers on tour. Um, but their mental prowess was second to none. And yet if you look at some of the other players um, who had incredible ability um, hitting the golf ball but couldn't string you know, a few good rounds together because they would end up, um, when they did hit a bad shot, like you said, they're dragging the baggage on or, or whatever the reasons may be, they just weren't able to, to make it happen. And so it really, I think, goes to the point that you're making is you're going to hit some bad shots. The best players in the world do it. Ben Hogan, as you said, famously said, you know, he's going to hit five bad shots and, and, and so forth. Um, but the average player seems to take it a little bit more on the sleeve, if you will, uh, or on the chin, whatever, um, with them and, and are carrying those bags. Uh, and not just within the round, uh, Greg, but from past rounds. I mean, I know people that have come out in the lesson tee that are talking about a bad round they had two years ago. How do you diffuse that? How do you wrap them into a, a, a mindset to say, you know what, that was two years ago. We need to figure some way of moving you forward, get past that. It's like a bad relationship. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it's really just a bad mental habit. I think the, the great ones have developed really effective, positive habits. I'm, I'm glad you talked about Tiger Woods. Of course, we all talk about Tiger Woods when we talk about the mental right. game. But he worked with a sports psychologist at the age of 12, and I think that was key because he developed good mental habits. And, and from mm -hmm. then on, he basically had really good habits that he, didn't, uh, that he could hold on to for you know, his entire career. And I think what happens a lot of times is some of the PGA Tour players, they get on tour, and all of a sudden they say, oh, i got to work on my mental game now. 
and they already developed yeah. some bad mental habits, and they have to go backwards before they go forward. So I think the key with the mental game is you need to develop some positive, effective habits. And when you focus on a round that you had two years ago and you still think about that shank you had a month ago and you think about the missed mm. putt you had last week, you're in trouble. You know, it's called selective amnesia. You've got to forget the bad stuff and remember the good stuff. And the great players have selective amnesia. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing, too, you know, I'm going to jump ahead here to talk about some of the, uh, what we can learn from the players. They, they know they, they hit bad shots. They know when they hit the bad shot. And you're right, they're able to release that. But more importantly, I think, is they learn from it, is they assess what happened. They release the emotion. I mean, we've, we've seen it, and I'll go back to Tiger. I mean, I've seen Tiger on on uh in tournaments where he's hit a really bad shot and he you know you can kind of see him mumbling and a couple times he's actually let a few bad words slip out when he's really mad um but he 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 expels that emotion for that particular moment and then he regroups so exactly, give me an idea what exactly. what, is, think, what differs yeah go ahead sorry well i was going to say i think when tiger first came out on the tour he he got really high and then he got low, mm-hmm. and then you know he let go of that emotion. And then he said, as he as he, as you said, he learned to to not go so high and not to go so low. And you notice he he doesn't do that as much as he used to, um, you know. Right. But it's it's, it's all it, it's really up to the person. I think some people play a lot better when they get really pumped up when they hit a great shot, and then they have to let go of the the negative stuff. But if you look at a guy mm-hmm. like Cam Smith uh, that just won the players. He doesn't go high right. or low at all. He's totally just, you know, kind of even keel, and that works for him. Mm-hmm. I think the secret right. is one of the secrets of the mental game is you're, you're your best model, and you've got to figure out what works best for you. You know, you're, you're not Tiger right. Woods. You're not Cam Smith. You are, you know, John, John Overton or whatever, and you have to figure out, you know, why you played your best, you know, last week. And you have to figure out what makes you tick and what makes you choke and then reinvent that over and over again. Yeah, and I think one of the worst things as, as a, a um, teaching professional that we hear, um, especially from new students, is, well, um, I really like so-and-so and I want to swing like his or I want to swing like hers or whatever the case may be, depending on your student. And the truth of the matter is we're all different. So our, our body types are different. Um, our height, weight, so forth is different, and our abilities are different. So for me to, you know, to bring a student in and try to get them to swing like a, like Tiger or like Nick Faldo or or somebody else is not likely going to happen. I mean, there may be certain things that they can um, that may be similar depending on their body style, and the same thing works with the mental game. And that's really what you're talking about is we get a lot of times they they want to be like somebody else, but really they have to define themselves. And that's where you come in. That's where you're able to sort of isolate that individual, find out what works for them, and then help them build on that. Am I right? Exactly. I mean, if you look at a guy like Phil Mickelson, you know, he's a high risk taker. And he loves risk. And he plays, you know, high risk. You know, he lives by the sword, dies by the sword. We've seen it at the U.S. Open, but we've seen him, you know, do it at the Masters where he hit out the pine straw Mm. number 12. And, you know, he won the tournament. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, 13, and the, uh, right. on, the, on the par five. And, um, you know, the idea is that 
uh, he has to play with high risk. If he didn't play with high risk, he wouldn't be motivated. He wouldn't be turned on. But other people, they don't need – they need to be more conservative. So the secret is mm-hmm. you have to figure out what makes you tick, what makes you play your best, what got you in the zone, and, and try to emulate that. Now, you're not always going to get in the zone because you're, you know, you're doing those things. But you're increasing the chances of playing better when you focus on your strengths, what makes you play your best. Yeah, and and you're right. You know, again, some players are a little more aggressive, and some are more conservative. And and it's the same as with your your tempo. When you're out there, if, if you're somebody that um, maybe has a, a body rhythm that's a little quicker than than average, um, your your swing tempo is going to be reflective of that. So if you're working with somebody and they're trying to slow you way down that's going to have an adverse effect on your golf game uh, because you're not going to, you're swinging outside of what your body is designed to do. Or conversely, if you're somebody that swings like an Ernie Els or a Freddie Couples, and I don't mean exactly like the swing, but with that sort of a, a rhythm, and then you try to speed it up like a Nick, Nick Price, um, you're now out of your rhythm. You're out of your natural body rhythm, and that's not going to work either. So, Greg, we, we get faced with a lot of, different situations out in the golf course, a lot of different troubles, whether it's bunkers, water, what have you, uh, or sometimes just the undulation in the course itself. So how do we deal with that? How do we, when we get up on a hole, and I, I talked, I don't know if you caught some of the earlier segment, but we talked about what to do when you're playing um, a new golf course for the first time. Maybe you're decided to venture away from the home course and you're playing a new course that you've never been on before. And, of course, as always, all golf courses have lots of trouble around. Um, but how do we effectively deal with it? Well, I think one of the secrets with trouble is you don't look at the trouble. Uh, you know, it's called the – it's really a, it's a psychological principle called the ironic process theory principle. And it's the old saying is if I say don't think of a pink elephant, what do you think about? The pink elephant, right? Right. So if you have a lot of trouble on the course, you don't think about the trouble. You, I tell players don't even look at the trouble. Look where you want to go. Look at, you know, down the fairway. Look at the green. Don't even let your eyes veer to the trouble because once you do that, you then it becomes in your, um, you know, your consciousness and you start thinking about it and then you overthink about it. So look at where you want to go and what you want to do and, and then just execute and be in the process. Now, if you hit a bad shot, you hit a bad shot. But the goal is, is to focus on what you want to do and when you do that, you're more likely to do it. And when you get somebody who, and as we all know, uh, especially with our amateurs I'm talking about, um, that is fine for a hole or two until the wheels fall off the bus. How do you get them to recover from that? And, and I know this sort of falls under recovering from bad shots, but if they've strung a few bad holes and, and so forth together uh, and you're trying to um, not have them focus on the trouble, they're inevitably going to do that, especially if they've hit it in the water or they've, you know, the last three holes they've hit it in a bunker, automatically their mindset defaults to, oh, God, here's trouble on this hole too. How do we uh, get them to avoid that? How do we get them back on track? Well, you know, that's, that's a, a multi-layered question. And it, it's <laughs> tough, and it depends on the person, and I'll answer it a, a few ways. Sure. One of the reasons why we get off track uh, and we start losing our focus and our composure is because we're overly concerned with, our score, the outcome. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you ask people, especially PGA Tour players, when they're in the zone, if they ask them about their score, they they would not even recall their score. They don't know what their score is. And if you ask an amateur when they're playing their best, they're usually not playing for their score. 
score usually makes your emotions go up and down. So if you can go to the golf course, and this is really tough because I know it's fun to play for a score, but if you can let go of being so score-oriented, you're not going to have so many ups and downs during a round. And, th and that's really important because, you know, you go there and you're expecting, a, let's say, uh, let's say you shoot 90. And now you're, you know, about to shoot 100. Now you're all upset, and that's going to ruin your day. Um, or if you're usually shooting 90 and now you're going to break 80, now you're going to get real nervous because now you're going to have a great round. And that can ruin your day because then you can have a couple of blow holes. So I tell my right. players, you know, to, to let go of the score, you know, play every hole to the best of your ability. Uh, you know, if you're typically going to, you know, if it's a PGA Tour player, let's say, they're always trying to birdie every hole. So what is, what's the score going to matter? You're still going to try to birdie every hole. If you're an eight handicap, you're trying to par every hole. So the idea is mm -hmm. you're, that's your goal. So why should you focus on your score? Now, the other thing that I think relates to your question about, you know, fixing blow-up holes and, and um, you know, and, and you go down that uh, rabbit hole, uh, one of the, the, the secrets that I've learned in my golfing career, and, 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 and I've, it helps so many players, is you have to go with whom you brought to the dance. What happens mm -hmm. a lot of times is players have this one swing thought, and they, you know, it works for two holes, and then they, it doesn't work anymore, so they switch their swing thought, and it worked for two more holes, and then they switch their swing thought again. And, and by the ninth hole, they have the tenth swing thought, and, and now they have this thing called paralysis <laughs> by analysis because they're overthinking. Right. You've got to go with whom you brought to the dance. You've got to have these two or three solid swing thoughts and go with them because eventually – you're, you're going to play your best golf. You know, it might not be for the first couple holes, but eventually if you go with whom you brought to the dance, you're not going to go down that rabbit hole. The, the, I think the worst problem that most amateurs have is they switch their swing thoughts from one hole to the next because it didn't work. And so by the 10th hole, they're just so, you know, they think they're so, so overthinking. They're so um, paralysis by analysis that they, they, they just lose, lose the, the fun of the day. Yeah, and, and you pointed out something earlier that I think is, is also equally important. You mentioned about Jim Furyk, about having a post-shot routine, uh, which obviously is important, but also important is the pre-shot routine. I think if you have a consistent pre-shot routine, which we see the pros have, and I'll give you an example, you know, when you see the pros up on the tee and, uh, you know, they go through their pre-shot uh, pre routine and, you know, a, a camera clicks in the background or something uh, distracts them, they don't just get up there and hit the ball. They go through that routine again. And I think a lot of amateurs um, miss the boat on that, is they don't have an effective pre-shot routine. Even if they end up hitting a bad shot, they still want to go through that routine, and they want to do that consistently throughout every shot throughout the round. And so that's an area as well that I think adds to what we're talking about. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, uh course that's one of the key ingredients to the mental game uh you know and, and most people think of a pre-shot routine as just like you know how many waggles you take and how many looks right no it's much more than that it, it's really creating this bubble of emotions and uh <laughs> mental game juice that you're you're filling this bubble around you so that the pressure bounces off and and the better juice that you have in this bubble the less pressure can infiltrate your game. Now, I say the pre-shot routine should have three R's. It should keep you relaxed, it should promote mm -hmm. rhythm, and it should promote a reactive mind, three R's. So, for instance, you should start your routine, maybe shrug your shoulders, because a lot of times people are carrying their bag, you know, get the tension out of your shoulders, breathe out, 
And then what you want to do is you want to basically visualize the shot where you want to go. You get into what we call the think box, you know, think about what you're doing. But once you get into the play box, you're just reacting. And when you're reacting, really you're creating a rhythm. So uh, what, what I do with a lot of players is I count. I go one and two and go. And the reason why I do that is when you're in the, react, uh, when you're in the play box and you're being reactive and you're promoting rhythm, uh, the more rhythmical your routine is, the more rhythmical your swing is. Because as we know, under pressure, we get faster. So if you can keep the rhythm in mm -hmm. your routine, you're going to keep the rhythm in your swing. And if you keep the rhythm in your swing, you're going to play your best under pressure. Yeah, and, and as I mentioned earlier, too, we've seen that even at the tour level. We've seen players over the years that get out of that rhythm, even at the top level. Uh, you know, they're not immune from it e either. And, you know, we'll see them get out of their rhythm, and you can almost predict what's going to happen. Jordan Spieth has done this. I mean, as, as good of a player as he is, and, um, and as we've seen him in the past, at the Masters particularly, we've seen him get out of that rhythm and ultimately end up having yeah, not only a bad hole, a bad yeah. tournament, and a, yeah. So, I mean, this is something where, you know, you have to really work with somebody uh, to the best of, of your ability and, and not be afraid, and I'm talking about obviously from the student's perspective here, is it's not just about hitting the ball pretty down the fairway and, and hitting a, a, making solid contact every time. Of course, we want ultimately to be able to do that, but it's having what goes on between the ears is extremely important. What you say to yourself, negative talk, um, positive talk, that sort of thing. And that's something I'm sure that when you've worked with some of the, the, the teams and some of the individuals that you've helped out along, the along your career, um, that's a conversation you have as well about what they're saying to themselves. Give me some thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I, call, I call it fire, fire your bad inner caddy. Um, you know, if you have a caddy <laughs> and uh, he's telling you, oh, you just hit another bad shot. You better you you know we're we're gonna we're gonna have a terrible round today. You'd fire that bad inner caddy, right? Well, you should fire that bad yeah. in you know inner self talk. You you got to get rid of that. And it, it it's not easy to do, but there's a couple cool techniques you can do. I know a lot of your listeners probably have a lot of negative mm -hmm. self talk, and I've had a lot of players yep. that have negative self talk. And one of the best things that works with them is put a rubber band around their wrist, and every time mm -hmm. they have a bad um, thought, they snap it. Not so much it hurts, but they snap it so that that, that uh, kind of sting is associated with a negative um, self-talk, and then they have a positive uh, self-statement that they can replace it with, like hit it down the middle. So the idea is it's already planned that every time they're wearing the, the, uh, the rubber band around their wrist, every time they have a negative image or a negative um, self-statement, they snap it and they replace it with what they, you know, what they want to say, like hit it down the middle or hit it on the green. And that really works really good because that's actually called classical conditioning. And it's really reconditioning our mind to think more positive. Um, and, and, you know, there's a, a lot of ways to do it. But it, it's ultimately you, we, we have developed some bad mental habits, and we've got to figure out ways to, to kind of recondition our mind, and, and using the rubber band is one way. Um, another way is just to kind of maybe every time you have a negative self-statement, you slap your leg and you replace it with a positive, or, or just replace it with a positive self-statement. The idea is over time those negative self-statements are going to diminish, and, 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 you know, you've allowed them to come into your game and creep in your game, 
but you got to get rid of them. You know, it's kind of like, um, why would you take a hammer and slam it on your thumb, right? You wouldn't do that because it's right. painful. Well, why are you taking negative self-statements and playing golf? It's going to be painful to your mm -hmm. game because you're not going to play well. So you got to figure out ways to get rid of those negative self-statements. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and as we're as I'm listening here, I'm writing down to make sure I fire my inner caddy tomorrow because uh, there's been a few bad bad holes uh, here lately, so i got to make sure I get rid of that uh, negative dialogue. And I think there's going to be a run on rubber bands tomorrow at the store. So, uh, But, no, you're, you're exactly right. You have to... You have to replace that, and you have to find ways. And, again, these are things, that, you know, working with, um, you know, somebody like yourself uh, that specializes in helping people manage themselves um, on the golf course um, is going to benefit them. And this is something that we see so many amateurs really, really struggle with. I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen players come to the lesson tee and, you know, they'll say, well, I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with that, and, I'll, you know, they'll hit a few balls, and I'm saying, well, what are you struggling with? You, you, you know, the last five shots were, you know, were, were fine. So what is it you're struggling with? And more often than not, it's not their ball striking ability, but that's what they want help on. Well, I need to, you know, I'd play better if I could get 10 more yards off the tee. Well, no, you're not, because that's not your problem. What, what the problem is is what you're saying to yourself when you're out in the golf course, because I've taken them out in the golf course, and, you know, all hell breaks loose. They're all over the place. And I'm like, what happened to the guy that was on the range 20 minutes ago? Where did he go? That's the guy you need to bring out to the golf course. That's the level of play you need to bring out here. Right? Yeah, but that's, that, that stems from having a productive practice. And right. the way I describe it is this. Practice is one animal. Competition or playing on the golf course is another animal. Uh, the closer mm -hmm. you can get those two animals together – the more your game transfers. That's what you're talking about, and that's what everybody wants. They right. want their best swing to transfer from the range to the golf course. And the mm -hmm. farther they are, the less the transfer. So the question is, how do you get those two animals to be closer, to be similar? Well, you know, the obvious answer, when you practice, you've got to put more pressure on yourself. Going back to the pre-shower routine, you know, you can't just hit one ball after another. Maybe you hit a couple like that, but then before every shot, you practice your routine, and you do your routine before every shot, and you also, mm -hmm. you know, have a uh, fairway that's really tight. You got to hit 10 out of 10 drives in that fairway, otherwise you can't go home, or whatever it is. You got to make 23 footers in a row on the putting green. Whatever it is, you know, you got to add pressure because the golf course has pressure. The range has no pressure. Right. And and that's the big right. problem. And the other thing is when you're on the golf course you got to decrease the pressure in your mind. You know, you got to, what I call, uh, you know, do things to decrease that anxiety, uh, the stress level. You know, one, one thing that a lot of people don't understand with the mental game is most of it's done off the golf course. And a great example, mm -hmm. uh, Lahari, um, that finished second at the players, he was talking about mm -hmm. how, how he meditates, and he's a big meditator. And, and I think right. and, and Tiger Woods meditated. That's a huge mental skill. And, you know, it, 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 oh, you, what you want to do is you want to learn to meditate off the golf course and maybe have a trigger word when you're meditating at home, like saying cool or smooth. And then that word gets associated with that calm state. And then the start of your routine, you breathe out, you say your word, and you, you get those, um, those calm feelings. And uh, I remember uh, Tom Watson has said when he learned to control his heart rate, he learned to win. And he learned to control his mm -hmm. heart rate because he learned to meditate and breathe. 
And that's a key ingredient, but you've got to do it off the golf course and then bring it onto the golf course. Yeah, it's like anything. You have to practice all of those um, areas. And, and you're exactly right, Greg, too, because, you know, if you're, if you're breathing, you know, if you start feeling anxious on the golf course or the anxiety uh, level starts to raise, your breathing changes. Suddenly you're, you're, it's a much more rapid breathing and then now you're not calm, cool, and collective on the golf course anymore. You're nervous, you're jittery, um, and also you become tense in a lot of cases. So you're not making those nice, smooth swings anymore. Now suddenly you're chopping at the ball, uh, or you've quickened the pace, as I mentioned earlier. So there's a lot of things that can be happening. So, yeah, you're exactly right, meditating. Um, other people do physical things like yoga and things like that. Uh, there's other things that you can do to sort of calm yourself down and also get into a more relaxed state so that when you get to the golf course, you know what, you're going to hit a bad shot. It's just inevitable it's going to happen. But it's not going to affect you the same way if you develop some techniques out off the golf course that you can bring to the golf course to help you through it. Um, I want to shift gears here a little bit, and we'll go back to the pros a little bit um, on this one here. And um, is there a difference? Uh, and if so, what is the difference mentally for those that play in a major as, a vo- as opposed to uh, you know, uh, a regular tournament. Is there a difference in uh, how they deal it mentally between the majors? Well, well not, and not, not, to <laughs> not to no. Tiger Woods. Not to Tiger Woods because he expected to win majors. And I think that's the difference. Right. You know, if you, if you expect to win majors, if you expect to win every tournament like a Tiger Woods, I know that's, you know, easy to say. Mm-hmm. Then when you get to a major, you're not out of your comfort zone. But if, if you don't feel comfortable and if you don't really see yourself as a major winner, which a lot of tour players don't, then when they play the majors, they're not comfortable. They're way out of their comfort zone. You know, and it's the same thing with um, an amateur playing a hard golf course. You know, they feel like they're not going to shoot the typical score they do, so they get way out of the comfort zone. But if they played a hard golf course and they expected to sh- play well, then they, they would um, not be out of their comfort zone and they'd be more relaxed. And I think that's one of the secrets. You know, uh, a lot of people say once you win a golf tournament on the tour, it's a lot easier to win the next one. Once you win the first major, it's a lot easier to win the second one. It's because now they see themselves as a winner, and once they're in that mm-hmm. position in that tournament, they expect to win and they don't get out of their comfort zone. Exactly. And you know something, too, and, and I think a lot of this had to do with Tiger, um, because now they're, they're all sort of developing that, that winner's mindset. Because something, and I don't know if you ever noticed this or not, but I'm going back probably at least 15 or more years ago. But you always used to hear players, uh, and I'm just paraphrasing here, but would come out and say, you know, if I can get into the top 10, I'm going to be happy. Uh, you know, obviously I'd like to, you know, I'd love to be number one someday, but if I can get in the top 10 uh, in this event, I'm going to be happy. Do you think that that was sort of defeatist a little bit with some of the players? Do you think by saying that they're sort of speaking the truth um, to, to come to fruition as opposed to saying, hey, you know what, um, I, I'm feeling good this week. I have a really good opportunity or chance to win, um, and that's what I'm going for. You know, like you said, Tiger always said, you know, he's going in here to win this tournament. He's not coming in to finish in the top ten. In fact, if he finished second, he was disappointed if he didn't win. Do you think players that I, I, had yeah. that sort of mentality was a problem? Well, again, you know, you're your best model. And for Tiger, that wouldn't work. But if, you, you know, you're ranked 100th in the world um, or, on, or let's say 100th on the money list on the PGA Tour, you know, and sure. you say, well, I want to finish in the top 10, you're setting realistic goals. 
uh, if you say I want to win this tournament, you might be putting too much pressure on yourself, and that that could that could itself okay. be a defeatist attitude. So it really depends on the person, and it's hard to say. You know, for Tiger, he didn't care about the money because he you know didn't need it. He wanted the win, right? And he wants the major. Right. So you know, it depends on the person. You know, of course, um, when you're struggling on the tour, your goal is to make cuts, and that's ultimately your first right. goal. And then once you make cuts. Then you want to finish in the top 20, whatever it is. But the idea is, it, you know, you're your best model, and you got to figure out what goals that you set work best for you. And, uh, you know, for some players, mm-hmm. just saying, oh, I want to make the cut, that could be a problem too because once they make the cut, then they lower their intensity level and they don't play well on Saturday and Sunday. So, again, it really depends on the person and what works best for them. Yeah, and you're exactly right. Um, I want to ask you again. We're going to stick at the at the um, professional level for now. Um, I know that you've worked with both uh, men and women. Do you find a difference in how they approach the mental game between the guys and the girls? Is there a difference? And what has been your impression between the two on how they handle that mental pressure? And I'm talking about obviously the higher level players. Well, I don't think they approach the mental game differently. I think the, the best players know and it's important, both men and women. But I do think mm-hmm. women um, are more open uh, to expressing mm-hmm. their emotions. They're more open to working with a sports psychologist. Maybe they're even more aware of their emotions, what emotions uh, work best for them, and you know, expressing it and uh, wanting to share it. Um, and so I always got the... Um, impression it's not just but some some men are very open as well but in general i Mm -hmm. think more women uh are more open to to working with a mental game coach just because they want to share their feelings and emotions and do you think that the women tend to be more open to change as well when it comes to that do you think that they're easier to be able to say hey we need to work on this and you know are they more apt to make those adjustments and changes easier than the men. And the reason why I'm asking, it's always interesting because, uh, again, I, I agree with you. I think the women tend to be much more open with, and not just in golf, but in everything, with their feelings and emotions, which uh, in many ways can serve them well, but maybe could also be a, a detriment at, in, in certain circumstances. But do you find that they're more resilient, or, re- or not resilient, receptive uh, to making changes uh, than the men? Well, I think, you know, the, the first step to uh, behavior change is awareness. So the more you're aware of what makes you choke and what makes you play your best and more open to that, the more willing you're to change. So I, I don't really see that men or, or women are more open to change if there's a difference. Um, but I do think that women are more open to the, uh, working with the mental game coach uh, than men. Right. I think some men just think maybe they see it as a weakness. But at the same time, right. you know, uh, I think you want to see it as a strength because it's like working with a, uh, a fitness instructor. You know, you're trying to get stronger, so why not try to get mentally stronger? You know, I think the biggest issue, and it's not, oh, it's not really with golf as much as other sports, but they think working with a mental game coach is seen as a weakness and that they can do it. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, of course, Jack Nicklaus never worked with a sports psychologist, and he could do it himself. No. So some players right. can do it. Right, but some other players maybe right. need a little push and a little nudge in the right direction. Well, like I said, I think, and you're exactly right about Jack because you know back in that time, um, and that's what I was saying at the very beginning is we didn't really have 
um, this in the forefront like we do now. Now, you know, we're hearing much more about it over the last decade or so. Um, do you think, um, as far as the mental game is concerned, um, I know there's some key steps. So if you're trying to help a student, what are some of the key steps in helping them improve? So if you had a student that just, you know, fresh off the uh, off the farm, so to speak, uh, came to you tomorrow and you sensed that they obviously needed help uh, in developing a strong mental game, what would be some of the steps that you would take with them? Well, here, here's a perfect example. I had a, a, a father uh, bring his son, who's uh, 12 years old, um, from Omaha, and I worked with him. He was, he was a great kid. Um, and, you know, the first thing I say, you know, I, I play competitive golf, so I typically play with them. And I say, you know, at the start of the round, I say, if I could wave my magic wand, what's one thing you would want to fix in your mental game? So if they say confidence, that's the one thing we work on. I don't work on confidence and then concentration and anxiety. I only work on one thing. So whatever they say, that's typically what we do. And then I might ask them mm -hmm. questions like, when you're playing your best, what did it feel like? What were you thinking? When you were playing your worst, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? And I try to create um, – understand patterns that they um that they implement and you know when they're playing their best and because they're their like i said they're their best model and then based on that we try to, to develop effective habits that can occur occur during a round um so if it's confidence we might work on imagery a lot of imagery on the course we might look, work on you know get into the field zone we might work on like mm -hmm. positive self-talk um and then you know I also, because I play golf with them, I look at their routine. I can see if they get faster, if they're consistent, if they, you know, their body language changes. So in a way, it's a science, but in a way, it's an art form. And because I've been doing it so long, you know, I kind of have to feel what the player needs. And whatever the player needs is what I give it, what I hopefully give to them. Uh, that's kind of a, a kind of a way I try to express myself. Uh, every player needs something um, unique for them, and I try to give them what mm -hmm. they need, you know, and I try to base it on science, but it's also based on, you know, my uh, intuition. Are there things, Greg, that you do, like for, I'll give you an example to, just so you understand what I'm referring to here. Um, you know, as a swing coach and as an instructor, you know, we would look for things, um, weaknesses, if you will, in um, maybe their balance is not uh, not good. They're not swinging within themselves. Again, their rhythm is off and that sort of thing. Are there? And so we would do an assessment when we get a new student. We would do an assessment. We would assess where they're at, what their abilities are, and where their strengths and weaknesses are. Um, is there such a, a beast or a test, if you will, uh, on your side of things? What do you do when you're first getting? I mean, obviously you're having a conversation, as you just pointed out, with this young uh, young boy, but. Um, is there something that is there a process that you go through when you're working, particularly with new students, um, that you go through to sort of assess where they're at? Uh, is there a test, if you will? Well, as I said before, you know they're their best model. I've never used a psychological test because I don't believe okay. that that's going to show me. Um, you know, there's not one best mental game. You know, the the mental right. game for Nick Faldo is different than Freddie Couples. Uh, so the secret mm -hmm. is what works best for that player is the, is the secret. So you got to figure out uh, w what worked best for them in the past and then try to create patterns um, and effective routines to uh, replicate those, those favorable patterns and then avoid uh, the patterns that made them choke. 
you know, but when I work with a player, you might say, what do I look for? Well, a lot of things I work for, I look for in their routine is the three R's, you know, do they have, Mm -hmm. you know, are they relaxed? Are they rhythmical? Um, You know, do, do they get interactive mind? Are they consistent? You know, so I look at their routine. I also look at things like after a bad shot, you know, do they slump their shoulders? Do they have negative body language? Um, So it really depends on the player. Uh, And I look at, you know, a 360 approach. I also talk with the parents. Um, if I'm working with a junior and I, you know, what do you think? What has happened in the past? What has happened in tournaments? And then I, I talk to the player. What do they think? Uh, you know, what, what made them play really well? What, you know, what's blocking them? And so, and I also talk to their swing coach and I say, what do you think? And then, and then this is I also talk to the swing coach and I say, this is what we're working on. So I hope, you know, you can be involved in the process. So it's like a 360 approach. I tell the parents what we're right. working on. I tell the swing coach. I tell, you know, the junior, of course, if I'm working with a junior. Uh, or if it's a team, you know, I talk with the coach. As long as the player allows me to talk with the coach, I say, can I tell sure. the coach what we're doing? And if he or she says, yeah, then, then we talk with the coach because otherwise we want to just keep it um, confidential. But, you know, the mm-hmm. idea is that um, – you know, there, there's maybe some standards like the pre-shower routine and the negative body language, sure. um, and, and and you know the ideas of of how to get into the right mental state, and, and are they doing that? But ultimately, everybody's their own uh, role model, and you really got to treat everybody unique and and harness their own power. And I think it's also important too um, is having that conversation with them. Um, asking them questions, getting them to speak. Because, I mean, you know, it's amazing what, um, not only what you hear, but also what you don't hear. Um, a lot of times when you're talking with a student, they're, you know, saying, yeah, you know, I'm swinging great, and I'm doing this and that, uh, but I'm still struggling for some reason. Every time I get into a bunker, I'm starting. And a lot of times there's things that, that they're telling you, um, uh, or in some cases maybe they're not telling you, um, and so you have to sort of, you know, work around and try to draw that out of them in order to be able to, to, you know, assess where their problems are and then focus on and help put a game plan together. And I like the fact that you're involving, especially with juniors, obviously, you have to really involve the parents in that. And they can sometimes be detrimental to the efforts as well, as we know um, from many, many cases over the years where, um, you know, going to some of these uh, junior golf schools and things where the, the parents are just like a um, an, an overprotective soccer mom, no no offense to soccer moms, um, and the, the kid is just overwhelmed uh, with pressure from the parents. So that's a fine line that you have to also walk uh, as well, correct? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think usually if a parent hires me, you know, they want me involved in the process, and they're going to listen to what I say, especially to them. Uh, but sometimes I've told parents, hey, you know, uh, if you want to be the coach, you know, when they play bad, they're going to look to you. And when they play good, they're mm-hmm. going to look to you. You're going to be the bad guy, and you're going to be the good guy. So you don't want that. You just want to be the parent, and you want to hire me. You want to hire a swing coach and let us, uh, us do the job, and you just give them a lot of loving. And that's all you should be doing. That's right. Yeah, I think if they're just supportive and, and not really interfering, and certainly they need to, to be involved in the discussion to a certain degree and certainly need to have input as well. But, yeah, they, they need to just be there and be supportive for that uh, that junior and, and just uh, encourage them in, in any way they can. And, and 
not be um, and, and when I the reason why I say that is you know we've all been down that road where you know the parent thinks that their their child is going to be the next Tiger Woods and they want to push 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 and maybe that's not in the best interest of the student so it's very difficult from your perspective and also from the uh, the swing coach's perspective that you want to be able to make sure that the parents understand that you know little Johnny may not you know make it to the PGA Tour but he can still have a fulfilling uh, uh, you know golf life if you will what do you want to see moving forward? Um, what, or what do you see moving forward when it comes to the mind game? What do you see the future hold for, for golf and the mind game? Well, I think technology is going to be key with the mind game. One of the things that I, I you know, I got my Ph.D. at the University of Florida, and we were working mm-hmm. on um, uh, psychophysiological measures, which is brain waves and stuff. But the problem is you, you kind of typically had to do that in the lab. I think – once they develop an app, and maybe they can do this, maybe they can't, and, and uh, when you're in the zone, you can look at the brain waves that you had when you're in the zone. You know, maybe you had high beta and low alpha and, you know, all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you try to replicate those brain waves. I think, you know, you can do it through self-talk and you can do it through imagery, but what those, what those things are doing is they're really creating the brain waves, the right brain waves for you to play your best to get in the zone. You know, a lot of people say, you know, I love it when mm-hmm. I'm in the zone, but it's hard for me to get there. Well, yeah, because you had these brain waves <laughs> that you were, you know, firing. And I think once we know those exact brain waves, then it, you're more likely to get into that. But that, that technology, we're not there yet. I think once we develop that technology, then uh, I think sports psych comes into more of a scientific uh, forefront. And a lot of people may be more willing to engage in it. What do you, uh, final question, what do you enjoy most about your job? Well, you know, I'm a professor, so I enjoy teaching, but because I also mm-hmm. love golf, I, I, I enjoy working with young golfers and helping them uh, play their best under pressure and seeing them, you know, the things that I do most is not about golf. I always say, you know, what we're talking about on the golf course is not just about golf, but it's going to help you in life. It's going to help you at school. Right. So what we're really teaching are positive life skills so that they become more successful, happier people. So really, you know, a sports psychologist is not really a sports psychologist. He's really a life psychologist if he's doing it right because he's trying mm-hmm. to give the athlete uh, life skills so that they can be successful on the golf course, but they can also use these skills in life. Yeah. I mean, I've often said – for many, many years um, that golf and, and life really mimic one another in, in so many ways. And I think people um, are, are, are realizing that. You know, I mean, we, we get faced with challenges, obviously, in our everyday life, just as we get challenges out in the golf course. And I think sometimes when, as you said, if you learn to deal with things off the golf course, it makes it that much easier when you get on the golf course to be able to handle some of those challenges and those difficult uh, um, uh, process in that, but um, very interesting discussion. I, I appreciate you coming on, and, and if you want to take a moment, just to if the folks want to, if there's a way that they can reach out to you, maybe if they'd like to uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, pick your brain a little bit, or, or maybe get into a discussion with you, and, and maybe how you can help them with their uh, golf game. Uh, by all means, let them know how they can do that. Well, uh, I created an online golf psychology course for the International Golf Psychology Association, IGPA, uh, and they can actually, if they go to um, www.masteringgolfpsychology.com, 
So that's MasteringGolfPsychology.com. There's some free videos on there. There's a free mental game ebook, and of course, if they're interested, they could uh, you know engage in the course. Uh, and then my email's on there too if they want to uh, connect with me that way. Well, I appreciate it. Well, Greg, thank you very much for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live. It's been an interesting discussion and uh, always good to talk about, um, you know, not just the typical swing um, theory and discussions that uh, so often we have in the game, but also uh, about an area of the game that's really, again, uh, has been developing now for many years, but um, is is growing and growing. And it'd be interesting uh, I think you're right. I think technology is going to play a, a huge role as we move forward, and it's going to be interesting to see how uh, the evolution of, of the mind game is going to change uh, in golf. Um, and I hope uh, I hope you will continue to be part of it, as I'm sure you will, and I appreciate you coming on and sharing uh, some time with my audience tonight. So, Ted, it's definitely been a pri- privilege and an honor to be on your show. Thanks for inviting me. Not a problem, and you're welcome to come back anytime. I'd love to have you. Thank you. All right, have a great week. All right, that was Dr. Greg Steinberg, uh, the professor of human performance at Austin Peay State University, uh, just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I want to thank everybody for tuning in tonight. I appreciate you listening to the broadcast. A special thanks to the gang on Coach's Corner, John Hughes and Tim Kramer. Thanks, guys, for always bringing your best and doing a great job. And once again, uh, a very uh, special thank you to my guest this evening, Dr. Greg Steinberg. All right, I will be back next week with another uh, Coach's Corner panel and another interesting guest. I hope you'll tune in. Uh, go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live. If you missed uh, tonight's broadcast or if you're joining us a little bit late, give it a couple of minutes and you can listen to the recorded version in its entirety. God bless everybody, and I will see you next week right here on Golf Talk Live. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.